The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So in the youth class, we've been talking about Cain and Abel. We've gotten into chapter 4 now. Um, I will. I told them last week we would probably get into Lemek and his kids and all the industry they did, but I would want to back up a little bit for today for the rest of the class, um, discussing who were Cain and Abel and what was going on at their time. To understand the full significance of Genesis chapter 4, we need to keep in mind the events of Genesis chapter 3, particularly the statement that God made in verse 15. Here we find God confronting and pronouncing curses on man, woman, and the serpent, who, of course, was Satan. And part of the punishment was that a savior would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And to us, that doesn't sound like a punishment, but God didn't say the serpent's head would be crushed as he addressed Adam and Eve. He said that addressing the serpent. So the God simultaneously pronounced a punishment as well as a blessing. It was a punishment to Satan for deceiving uh, humanity, and it was a mercy to humanity who sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, we read, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou Thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, verse 14 is a curse pronounced on the physical serpent, probably because it had been used to do harm to mankind elsewhere in the Old Testament when animals are used for immoral purposes and harm to mankind. It was not only people who were put to death, it was also the animal that was used. So that might be one reason why the serpent was punished. Another reason why the, ser- the physical serpent was cursed was because it was a type for what God would do to Satan. It would, that, it would be that God would cast down Satan and humiliate him. Verse 15, however, is directly addressed to the person behind the serpent. Verse 15 has been called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium, or as I like to say, the (laughs) Proto-Evangelium. It means the first preaching of the gospel, Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel, and that really is what this is. It is the first time God announces a coming Savior a person who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy him. And note, it is a seed of the woman. Typically, God's word describes children as the seed of the man. It is the man's seed who is the offspring. But here God says it is the seed of the woman who would come. And this we can infer that... um, the seed would be born of woman, but not for man. And in hindsight, we can clearly see this is indicating a virgin birth. We can also see from God's statement, this would be a man. It does not say, they shall bruise thy head, or it sh- they, the serpent would bruise their heel or her heel. It says, the serpent would bruise his heel. This is a man that would come. 
And it's very clear when God said this to the serpent, Adam and Eve were also listening in. And they understood that a Savior would come from the descendant of Eve, although they, uh, their knowledge was incomplete as to um, what his nature and mo- uh, method of birth would be. They understood that God was saying the serpent would be destroyed. And whether or not Adam and Eve understood the seed to be divine in nature, uh, there's, that's been a, bad, a matter of debate that I'll address later. It's been a bit controversial amongst commentators. I couldn't really find a specific common agreement as to whether or not they understood the seed to be uh, divine or if they were ignorant of it. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Regardless, Adam and Eve both demonstrate faith in God's word after hearing God's promise to crush the serpent. In chapter 3, verse 20, we read, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. In light of the universe-changing events that had taken place in the Garden of Eden, it was not surprising that uh, Adam decided to give his wife a new name. It is surprising, however, what he calls her. Previously, Adam, whose name is Ish in the Hebrew, called his wife's name Isha because she was taken from Ish. That is, he he called her woman because she was taken from man. Now he calls her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve, which means life or life giver, why did she pick why did he pick this name? And we think, that, well, that's obvious. She's the mother of all living. But why did he decide to give her a new name after all, all the punishments and after everything that just took place in the garden? Normally, when a new name is given to someone, it is based on what they've done. But, they, but think about everything that just occurred. Eve was beguiled. She saw the fruit was pleasant to the sight and good for food, and she ate it. She gave to Adam, her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then they were expelled from the garden and sentenced to death. Yet Adam does not call his wife's name gullible for falling for the trick of the serpent. He does not call his wife's name seducer for giving him the fruit to eat. He does not call his wife's name gluttonous for lacking self-control as she examined the fruit. Heaven forbid that um, he called her name fat. (laughs) That wouldn't have gone on for very well. <laughs> Nor did he call her, her name Death after being told they would both die. Adam called his wife's name Life. This was not because of what she had done, but based on what God had said. Adam clearly overheard what God had said, that she would, in pain, bear children. In other words, the human race would continue on. Adam and Eve were not going to be the last of humanity. Humanity would continue. And I do think Adam understood that Eve's child would be the one to crush the serpent. There was still hope for humanity. And so he names his, li- her wi- his wife's name Life, or Eve. <coughs> Went too far ahead from my notes, just a second. <laughs> Keeping in mind that Eve was named after the punishment and before the expulsion of the garden also would indicate that he named her this in reference to what God had said about her. Uh, as Hughes' commentary 
says, Hughes draws attention to the statement, she was the mother of all living, but Eve has not mothered anyone yet. Hughes points out this is the prophetic perfect tense, that is, speaking of future events as if they are already complete. It shows Adam's certainty, she will be a mother. This will happen, because God had said it will happen. And I do think this is a profession of faith on Adam's part. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Adam has not seen her give birth yet, and yet he is fully confident she will. And, and now we come to chapter 4. <clears throat> Eve also shows faith in God's promise. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. While we don't have the original language that Adam and Eve spoke, the languages were all confused at the Tower of Babel. So Moses is giving us what the equivalent of what Eve said in the Hebrew. And under divine inspiration, Moses saw fit to represent Eve's words in her language by referring to the name Lord as Yahweh, God's covenantal name, <clears throat> rather than the general name Elohim, which is what Eve previously referred to God while she was talking with the serpent. So while she was conversing with the serpent, she referred to God as Elohim, more of a general name for God. <clears throat> but now she addresses him as Yahweh. So Eve is acknowledging that God has made promises to her and Adam, that humanity will continue, and she's seeing uh, those promises come to fruition. We also, I think, can see her anticipation of the promised seed as she says, I have gotten a man. And many people may think, well, she's just saying, I've gotten a boy. I've gotten a male child. But nowhere else in scripture is a baby boy referred to as Ish, a man. The statement of him being a man, uh, that is Ish, is um, unique to Cain. We may also see that Eve called her firstborn Cain, and many have acknowledged is very similar to the word for possession or acquisition. The Hebrew name Cain and the Hebrew word for acquisition are very similar sounding. It's very similar sounding to Eve's own statement, I have gotten, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so many people say that acquisition, Cain's name means possession or acquisition. Uh, if this is the meaning, then Eve thinks she has acquired the man which God had promised her. She's thinking Cain must be this promised seed that would crush the serpent. Uh, but others point out that the etymology of Cain would mean spear shaft or a lance. And if that's the meaning, then we might infer that Eve saw Cain as some sort of weapon. Again, possibly to strike against the serpent. Or it may be a prophetic foreshadowing of how Cain would rise up to strike his brother. But regardless of what the meaning, uh, what meaning Eve attributed to the name, it's clear that Eve had great expectations for Cain. After all, this was the firstborn of all humanity. This was the hope that their race would continue. And so she placed a lot of expectations on him. Now, as I said, it's debated if Eve thought the seed would be divine or not, and this is controversial amongst commentators. I could not find any sort of agreement among them. They all seem to be on one side or the other. 
And that's because of the very odd statement she makes. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, as we've translated it. In the Hebrew, it's only four words. One commentator said, Eve's four words in the Hebrew are as obscure as an oracle. <laughs> Literally what she says is, I have gotten a man, the Yahweh. I've gotten a man, the Yahweh. The reason the statement is difficult is because the, with the Yahweh, is eth. Eth can either mean with, rendering the verse as, I've gotten a man with Yahweh, or with the help of Yahweh, or eth could mean the, or even, uh, as it does in Genesis 1-1, when God created the heaven and the earth. Eth heaven and eth earth. If eth means the, it renders for one as, I have gotten a man, the Lord. In which case, Eve would be acknowledging that this is the promised seed, and either he is divine in nature or he bears the name of God. Scholars seem to be in a lot of disagreement as to the proper understanding of Eve's statement, but while she may or may not have understood its, uh, the seed's divine nature, she does very much seem to anticipate this, that this is the seed and that this seed will crush the serpent. This is going to be a savior for them. As for her second son, Eve does not seem to have the same excitement for him as she did her firstborn. Eve names Cain's brother Abel. In the Hebrew, it is havel, meaning vapor or vanity. It is the very same word translated in Ecclesiastes many times as vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or in a way, you could say he's saying Abel of Abel's all is Abel. <laughs> havel, havel. What caused Eve to name uh, her secondborn vanity or vapor, we really can't say. It may, people speculate that it may have been her disappointment that she may have come to realize Cain is not the promised seed. Uh, some speculate it was a statement to the rest of humanity that life is brief. And, but regardless, it was a very fitting name that indicated his life would be cut short. Verse 2 in chapter 4 says, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain a tiller of the ground. While Eve didn't place much emphasis on Abel, the story does. Abel is listed first, before the firstborn. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Abel is described first, and Cain is described second. And just to clarify what it means, Abel was a keeper of sheep. <clears throat> sheep here is a kind of animal, which includes both sheep and goats. It's not just sheep. And secondly, um, humanity had not yet been given permission to eat meat. They were still only allowed or permitted by God to eat uh, vegetation. And so many people ask, well, then why is he keeping sheep? Why is he hurting animals if he's not going to eat them? Well, there's other uses for animals other than just eating them, especially if you include goats in the mix. They can be used for wool, for getting milk, for their skins to make clothes and other tools and other things, and of course for making offerings. And assuming that, and again, this is assuming Abel wasn't off-put or found it improper to do this, he may have also used their bones to make tools and their horns. Whereas Cain was a keeper of sheep, or Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain followed in his father's trade and became a farmer. He focused on cultivating the ground. 
It must have been very hard labor, plowing the field, constantly bending down, either digging trenches or hauling heavy loads of water to feed the plants all in the heat of the day. I'm sure Cain was very proud of his work. He was proud of the fruit that he had grown, considering that the ground was now cursed and fighting against him. And I think this is why Cain brought his crops as an offering to God. Cain had worked very hard to make them, and he was very proud of his work. Verse 3 says, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. The term, in the process of time, or at the end of days, refers to a designated point in time. End of days could mean the end of a work week, the end of a month, or more likely in this case, the end of a year. Probably when Cain's food was ready to be reaped and possibly coinciding Abel's flock was giving birth. And I do want to emphasize a lot of this is kind of inferring, inferred reasoning. We can't absolutely be certain. The fact that both brothers of two separate occupations both decided to bring their offerings at the same time would also indicate that this is a special designated point in time. We also see that Abel or Cain brought He brought the fruit of the ground, meaning he went somewhere specific. And again, Abel would have gone to the same place. We'll address that in a moment. Now, as for their offerings, we don't know if this was the first time they ever made offerings, but I do think we can be confident Adam, they would have seen Adam making some sort of offering to God before and were instructed to do the same by their parents. Adam and Eve had seen the amazing imagery that God put forth to them when they had sinned. They had sewn fig leaves together to cover their own shame. They made aprons to cover them. But that wasn't good enough. Despite already being clothed and being covered up, God did not approve of their clothing. Instead, God took the life of an animal and turned it into a skin to cover them. This was referred to as a covering rather than an apron. An apron would essentially cover spots of the body, but a covering is much more full in, its, in what it covers. This is a much larger covering. And we can only imagine the shock that Adam and Eve felt when they saw this. To us, death is commonplace. People die every day. Animals die every day. We intentionally kill them to eat them. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with eating animals, by the way. Uh, God did eventually consent to that after the flood, when no one found himself in a very different world. But the point is that Adam and Eve had never seen a living thing die. And also the imagery of its skin being taken off. That is a very graphic image for them. They should have expected themselves to die, and yet here they are watching God, the creator of life, take life away not from them, but from a different creature. I'm confident that Adam and Eve told this story to their children and probably taught them some sort of ritual offering to do the same. And as A.W. Pink points out, Abel's faith is evidence that his parents must have taught him about offerings. In Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abel offered unto God. And where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing. Thus Abel could only have have faith in what he had heard. 
what he had been taught, what had been taught to him regarding the proper worship of God. He had heard that the penalty of sin was death. He had heard that Adam and Eve's story of how they, how God disregarded their fig leaf aprons and replaced them with a, the produce of a slain animal. And this demonstration of a slain animal continued as both the boys grew into manhood. As I said, scripture tells us that Cain brought his offering to God, indicating they went somewhere specific at a specific time. Scripture does not tell us where that was. And because it doesn't tell us where it was, we can be confident it's not all that important to the story. It's not that important to our understanding of the main um, themes of the story. But the most likely candidate would be the gate to the Garden of Eden. The gate to the Garden of Eden, it's easy to imagine, would have been regarded as a holy place. It is where man first lived. It is where God dwelt alongside man and walked with him. It is where the tree of life resides. It is where the cherubim stand and the burning sword guards the way. And, of course, it's where um, man's first sin was committed. And so it would be a fitting place to make offerings for sin. In, in Genesis chapter 3, God says he put cherubim, not a cherub, but cherubim, multiple cherubim, at the gate to the Garden of Eden. And distinct from these cherubim was a flaming sword that turned every way. Many people think that the sword was in their hand, but that's not what the Hebrew would say. The sword was something distinct from them. It moved, it was constantly in motion, guarding the way. If this was the offering spot, and again... Bible doesn't specifically say that, but if this was the offering spot that they would bring their gifts to God, it would also be easy to see whose offerings were acceptable and whose weren't. Cain could very easily tell if his offering was rejected, and Abel could tell as if offering was accepted, because the sword of fire could have been used to consume the offerings. Elsewhere in 1 Kings 18.38 and Judges 6.21, we see that God sometimes does send fire to consume offerings. Whatever manner God decided to display his approval or, and disapproval, Cain understood very well that his proud, hard work was rejected, and Cain's was accepted. Verse 3 says, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his, his countenance fell. There's this idea that the only reason Cain's offering was rejected is because of his attitude. He didn't bring the fruit with the right attitude. I see that in a lot of uh, commentaries of conservative Christians and conservative theologians, they have that idea. I would strongly disagree with that idea. I would have to ask the question, what faith was he supposed to have? Was he supposed to have some ambiguous, uneducated faith to come to God? And just bring whatever he had? We already have discussed that faith cometh by hearing, and the only clear message that Cain could have heard is that fig leaves don't cover sin. Only a slant animal will. And second of all, the scripture is very clear. It was not only Cain God did not res had respect for, had not respect for. It was unto Cain and to his offering. 
he had not respect. Abel's faith in what he had heard about the Abel had faith in what he had heard about the true worship of God. His faith led him to bring not only blood sacrifice, but the best of his flock. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Hebrews 11.4 says also, as Hebrews 11.4 says, it also emphasizes that it wasn't just Abel's faith he had respect for. It was Abel's faith and the work that followed it. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Not just that he was more excellent, but the sacrifice he offered was more excellent than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, not just him in his faith, but of his gifts that were the produce of his faith, and by it being dead yet speaketh. And I also want to point out something we can learn from this situation of two people bringing different gifts to God. Cain was willing to worship. Cain was not a godless man. He was a religious man. He was very happy to bring his, work, his own works to God and show them off to him. But sadly, his religion was not the true one. I liked what, I don't know who A.G. Brown is. This is the first time I've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him. But I liked what he said about Cain and what he did, specifically the way of Cain, as you would put it. A.G. Brown said, Cain was ignorant of his own state before God and ignorant of God's requirements. He was willing to worship, but it must be dictated by his taste and not one in obedience to God's will. Cain's religion is now the most respectable and popular religion of the day. It involves no abasement of the, to the dust, no humiliating confession of sinnership, no absolute dependence out of self. It flatters man's pride, exalts his reason, and just suits the carnal heart that wants a religion to make his respectability more complete. Cain's religion is the curse of the day. It, chlor it chloroforms men into insensibility and indifference. Had they none, there would be perhaps the more, she the more hope for them. For when sinners were appealed to, they would feel they were addressed. But as it, but as it is, they put themselves down as part of the religious world. That is, that is when sinners are addressed, they don't see themselves as sinners. They're religious. They're not the ones who need appealing to. And perhaps a better name could not be found for them. For they have a religious worldliness. Or if you prefer the title, a worldly religiousness. The way of Cain is, as Jude says in his epistle, is not just one of hatred. It's one of ignorance, and it is a way of worldly religion. It is a way of worship dictated by one's appetite rather than the expressed will of God. And so Cain was angry at God for rejecting his offering after he had worked so hard to produce it. His face was vis visibly distorted. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thou countenance fallen? If thou do, does well, shalt thou not be accepted? And there accepted means raised up. Why is thou countenance fallen? And what God says, If thou dost well, won't thou be lifted up? And if thou dost not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. 
<clears throat> if anyone should have been angry, it should have been God. God is the one who was insulted by a, proud, a pride-filled man bringing his own works to him. He brought a bloodless fruit sacrifice. He did not regard the stories that Adam and Eve had told him about how God slew an animal for them and that this is how God expects your sin to be covered. But God does not deal harshly with him here. God instead is merciful and gives Cain counsel. He employed... Um, he asks Cain, essentially, there, he's telling Cain that he can make a change here, that he can turn from his ways. God describes sin, also, God describes sin here as a beast, ready to pounce on him as soon as he opens a crack in the door. And unfortunately, God's wisdom and counsel for Cain bounced right off his hardened heart. Just, and just as an interesting side note here, this isn't really part of the lesson, the imagery of an animal that's ready to pounce on him might indicate that at this point in time, wildlife was starting to become more hostile to humanity. Verse 8 says, <clears throat> And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And this is very similar to what God did with Adam in the garden. God's already omniscient. He already knows what happened. He's not asking the question for his own knowledge. As he did with Adam in the garden, he's asking the questions to try and draw out a confession from him. Unfortunately, he doesn't get a confession from Cain like he did from Adam. Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Cain is not repentant like Adam eventually would be. Cain is very flippant with God and gives essentially back toxin. <laughs> it's not a very good idea. And it says something Cain doesn't seem to have considered at uh, Abel can still talk to God after death. Thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Noting the word phrase crieth unto me. Ken Hughes writes, In scripture, this cry is like the cry of a desperate man without food in Genesis 41.55. It is the same scream for, the, uh, for help by a woman being raped in Deuteronomy 22.24. It will not be silenced. Now Cain learned something he had not previously considered. Abel's body, though it was covered with earth, could not be hidden, for his blood screamed to God for vengeance. And I do think this, uh, this is what Hebrews 12.24 is referencing uh, regarding the better covenant that Christ made, this promised seed had made for us. Hebrews 12.24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. What better things does Christ's blood speak than Abel's blood? Well, Abel's blood cried for vengeance for those who slew him. Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy, which is why Hebrews 12.24 is saying that his blood speaketh better things. <clears throat> and then we come to Cain's punishment. <clears throat> now art thou cursed from the earth, verse 11, 
which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall henceforth yield unto thee her, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. And a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. We here have some poetic justice. God, uh, God took Cain's occupation away from him. Cain was a tiller of the ground, and since Cain had spilled his brother's blood on the ground, the ground would no longer yield its fruit to him. He would now be a vagabond, meaning essentially a wandering homeless person. No occupation, no job, just wandering from place to place. And because the fruit of the ground would no longer be yielded to him, he would essentially have to um, uh, scavenge for whatever he could find or be given to him. And Cain, <clears throat> verse 13, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. It's a good point. Cain didn't just kill his brother. He killed someone's son. And as verse 17 would indicate, he killed someone's brother-in-law. He may have killed someone's uncle or father or husband. More than likely, because Cain and Abel seem to be adults here, Adam and Eve could have had other sons and daughters at this point. Cain didn't just kill his brother, he killed an upstanding member of the family. And so Cain is thinking, they might want vengeance for what I did. Anyone who finds me will slay me. And the Lord seems to have pity on him. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Uh, either seven times the punishment of Cain, or he's just saying the perfect amount. And the Lord set, set a mark upon Cain, lest any find him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. Again, I do think that might indicate that the offering was made at Eden, or at the gate to Eden. Uh, to leave the presence of the Lord was to go east of Eden. And I do want to get to one question in verse 17. <laughs> question that many skeptics love, love, love to ask. Where did Cain get his wife? You ever heard that one? <laughs> it's a popular question that was essentially made famous by the movie Inherent the Wind, a movie that I saw in school about three times in three different classes, biology, history, and English. The movie is nothing but pure propaganda. The majority of the time, if you assume the opposite, opposite things happened than what the movie says happened, you'll be right. <laughs> and that's act, sadly not an exaggeration. <clears throat> but where did King get his wife? This has confused many skeptics, and sadly it's confused many Christians. Well, Genesis chapter 5 says Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Not that hard to figure out. But the question is then, I thought incest was wrong. Well, it is today, because God outlawed it in Leviticus at the time of Moses. But at the time, there's nothing wrong with it. Primarily because uh, the institution of marriage was that a man can marry any woman. And at this point in time, we can also apply some science that Adam and Eve's genome would have been perfect without mutation. And so their offsprings wouldn't have all these mutations that we have today. And so if brother and sister got married and had kids, they wouldn't be born with any sort of defects or deficiencies in them. 
We today, and probably at the time of Moses when God outlawed intermarriage, had a, accumulated a bunch of mutations in our genes. And so now when we have kids and with very close family members, they're born with defects. It wasn't until later that God would outlaw it. And because God eventually did outlaw it, it is now today sinful because it goes against God's command. <clears throat> but again, back then, it's very easy to see where God, Cain got his wife. He got it, uh, her, <laughs> he got her from Adam and Eve. And some have speculated even a niece. And when it says, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, the implication being Cain was already married when he was exiled. His wife, his wife followed him in his exile. I will stop there, and next week the youth group will get more into Lamech and the descendants of Cain and all their in industrious efforts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.